please stand for the reading of God's word this morning, taken from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 42. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Giving honor to the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit. And thank you again, Pastor Gerald and all the elders, for the opportunity to serve the people of God here at Calvary with great joy. And good morning to all of you who I am experiencing virtually now for almost a year. I'm really, really missing being with everybody here and having the full cadre of all of you sit in front of me uh, as we share together in God's word. I've been so tempted to call for all of us just to come and gather here in the parking lot in the midst of the snow and just order pizza and be together. But that would um, kind of betray what I really hope for to happen when we all can gather again when this pandemic is over and really have a great 
celebration. But I am uh, tempted to make that call. I know some of you would meet me in the parking lot. Well, we don't want to just talk about getting together. We actually want to look at the word of the Lord. So let me pray and let us commence into the hearing and speaking of God's word. Father, we again give you thanks for your mercy upon our lives and the opportunity to hear you speak from heaven through Jesus. Thank you for redemption in him that he has purchased us and made us his own. Now would you give us hearts and minds that are attuned to the spirit of God and would you speak to us and would you conform us more to be like Jesus? Would you do it for your great namesake in every family that is represented by Calvary Memorial? Do it for your namesake in Oak Park and all around Chicagoland to many who are in need of hearing the gospel of Jesus. And would you use this message to magnify your name among billions who need to hear the good news. We love you, Lord Jesus, and ask that you would speak now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The relationship between good works and eternal life seems easy enough to understand Yet the debate about their relationship continues to fuel discussions related to lordship, altar calls, and revivalism. With respect to revivalism, since the time of the Great Awakening, the question of religious affections is whether or not those who shrieked, cried, wailed, mourned, and came forward to an evangelist had anything other than an emotional, guilt-ridden response to a word about the wrath of God. Images of being like a spider dangling over a fire should make anyone cry out to God. Yet the measure of true conversion would be whether or not one's affections had become inclined to God which would include the display of good deeds. Similarly, as droves of people walked stadium steps and church aisles to the tune of Just As I Am, whether for Billy Graham or Luis Palau or another modern evangelist, tele-evangelist, or even local pastor, the question of the expected change in life hangs over each step toward the metaphorical, virtual, and actual altars. Even in a local assembly, each of us can think of people who walk to the preacher with what seemed to be contrition, only to find them soon never to return to the pews or to exercise any religious practice at all. The harshest reality comes when many of us think of someone baptized as a child who departed from the church as a young adult, still makes claims of conversion, but lacks any display of religion. If Christ is not Lord over all, he is not Lord at all, some might respond to them. Each of these expectations of a manifestation of righteousness comes from a disposition that faith means nothing without corresponding works. Another view eliminates the concern for the absence of efforts by placing effort before the gaining of life itself. That is, 
If one puts forth the works, one gains life. While the faith alone disposition would dismiss this view as Catholic or cultic, it finds merit among some Protestants when rightly nuanced by appropriate evangelical theological emphasis and authority. How does one gain life with respect to doing things that are good? How does one do good with respect to gaining eternal life? Jesus will address both of these ideas in today's passage as he speaks to two of the highest do-gooders he faces in his earthly ministry. And what he will say about eternal life will fit squarely with both the piety of gospel belief and the practice of gospel belief. It will allow us to clarify the message of the gospel that we are proclaiming to others so that one does not miss eternity because works are not in the proper place. Or maybe even so that you do not miss eternity because you do not have works in their proper place. A lawyer or an expert in the Old Testament Jewish law poses a question to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The question seems innocent enough, but Luke tells us that the lawyer is testing Jesus. He wants to see if what Jesus teaches about eternal life is congruent with what the law teaches, at least how the lawyer understands what the law teaches. It is a test because the law is from the very finger of God, having been given by the Lord to the people through Moses and confirmed by the prophet's calling of the people to the standards of the law when they were breaking its commandments and prohibitions. If Jesus does not agree with the law, then he does not agree with God he would be revealing himself to be a charlatan rather than a teacher from God. However, typical of Jesus in the four Gospels, Jesus flips the inquiry so that one attempting to trap or test him is forced into a process of self-examination. Matthew 22 and Mark 12 have similar stories but different accounts in which Jesus does provide the same answer we find in this passage. So the Gospels are consistent in their theology even across various episodes. In this episode, Jesus elicits the answer to the question from the questioner by appealing to his expertise in the law. How do you read? what is written in the law. What does the law say about gaining eternal life? Jewish followers of the law would have recited these words from the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 5 daily, words that called the people of Israel to love God with everything in their being, with the entirety of their emotions, motivations, intentions, goals, and passions, their full mental and intellectual faculties, with everything one is in a person, that person was to love God. The expert in the law assumes that one could do this, and eternal life would then be granted as an inheritance. But even this is odd, for one is working toward what? 
can only be given freely, i.e., inherited. The lawyer also quotes from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 on loving one's neighbor as oneself. For these two commandments, Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18, were considered the great commandment in Jewish thought. With his affirmation of the lawyer, Jesus reveals that gaining life requires meeting the demands of the law. Do this and you will live. At this point, the legal expert should have been scared for no one loves God fully with the complete capacity of one's being. Even on our best days, our mere humanity photobombs our pious selfies. Just think for a few seconds of your absolute love of God and love of neighbor on the day when you didn't get enough sleep the previous night or on the day when you found out about the ungratefulness of your sibling or your child towards your hard work and sacrifices, or on the day when you were treated unfairly at your workplace. Our private thoughts at those times, even the thoughts of teetotalers, those who never curse, and those who are so patient we sometimes wonder if they have pulses, our private thoughts at those times would betray our love for God and neighbor when our words and actions would not. And if not our private thought for those who are stress eaters like me, our dietary habits would betray our mere humanity. What this means is that eternal life is out of the reach of everyone's best efforts. The law demands perfection the repetition of all in this passage, and the words as oneself show that only complete obedience and desire for the Lord will do. No part of our faculties may lack loving God. Only the me-first love naturally practiced wholly by everyone suffices for the way one is to treat one's neighbor at all times. Until we can meet this demand, we are not doing enough to have salvation. We are not doing enough to gain eternal life. I almost admire the confidence of this legal expert as much as I shudder at him. He is absolutely confident that he has lived in such a manner as to have met the requirements of the law of God. There is no question in his mind that he loves the Lord with his full being. But it seems that his confidence is shaken by his conscience. His conscience is stirring when it comes to his love of neighbor the way he loves himself. So in order to justify himself, he will inquire about Jesus's denotation of neighbor. Several things happen at once when he does this. First, he reveals that his scribal reading of the law allows him to divorce his love of God from his love of neighbor. He has a question on his own love for neighbor. Whatever definition he has of neighbor, he is not sure that his definition is consistent with the range of meaning of the verse he has just quoted. 
Jesus did not quote the verse to him, so it is not Jesus' words about the neighbor that are troubling to him. It is the law's words about neighbor that is troubling to him. Yet, if he is not keeping this point of the law, or at least if he is not certain that he is keeping this point in the law, he should not be confident that he is loving God fully, for he would be short on loving God at this point in the law. Second, he shows that the issue of eternal life and the law is whether or not one can be justified. While he seems to be attempting to stand justified in his answer, his answer is seeking to be right with the law, and thus he is seeking to be justified according to the law. He is seeking to be right according to the law. The question of eternal life and doing good is about being righteous. Third, he is looking for an answer that will be consistent with what he has practiced. More than likely, the neighbor is a person he deemed worthy of his love. Certainly, he is not looking for Jesus to mention someone he has not thought worthy of his love. His reading of the law is legalistic. There are neighbors who should get love, and there are neighbors who should not get love. But when Jesus puts the question of reading the law back to the legal expert, he finds himself no longer able to try to hold Jesus to conformity to the law. He now realizes that he himself might not be conforming to the intention of the law. To this, Jesus will reply with the story of the Good Samaritan, or better, with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Parables, you know, are stories that make comparison between common experiences and historical realities in order to clarify or exemplify or magnify historical theological teaching. Parables draw from the shared experiences of hearers, shared experiences like sowing, like a sower went out to sow, in the parable of the sower, or like shepherding. A man had 100 sheep in the parable of the man who left the 99 sheep to go and find one missing sheep. All of the hearers of those parables would understand the references to seed sowing and to sheep finding. The common experiences, although drawn from realities, are not historical realities in their telling, but they are stories made up by Jesus or other speakers. The speaker then relates the common experiences to something in the nonfiction world of the audience and the author of the parable. The character and events of the parable correspond to or represent the character and events outside of the parables. Parables, therefore, work like frame stories. They are like A Midsummer's Night's Dream or Frankenstein or The Atonement.
Jesus speaks more than 70 parables in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yes, I have to add John, even though parables are identified by their content and by the Greek word paromia rather than the Greek word parabole in John's gospel. Yet the parables were not a unique tool to Jesus. It's only that Jesus used parables more effectively than anyone else. We will get the most out of parables in our reading through the New Testament when we do not cut them out of their frames, as one New Testament scholar has said. The parable of the prodigal son makes most sense within its proclamation as a response to the people wondering how Jesus could eat with tax collectors and sinners. The parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14 make the most sense in the context of Jesus noticing people taking places of honor when he is dining at the home of a Pharisee. The parable of the unmerciful servant makes the most sense within the question of Peter asking how many times he should forgive the one who sins against him. These are not isolated ideas. And the parable of the Good Samaritan has the most significance in the context of this legal expert asking about inheriting eternal life and the identity of his neighbor. This particular parable has been a favorite of many throughout history, and it might be a favor, favorite of some of you. Augustine's allegorical interpretation of the parable, for example, is known very well. In Augustine's questions on the Gospels, he writes, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Adam himself is meant. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace, from whose blessedness Adam fell. Jericho is the moon and signifies our mortality because it is born, waxes, wanes, and dies. The thieves are the devil and his angels who stripped him, namely, of his immortality and beat him by persuading him to sin and left him half dead because insofar as man can understand and know God, he lives. But insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead. He is therefore called half dead, and so on in allegorical interpretation, Augustine goes. Augustine's allegorical reading follows those of Irenaeus, Origen, and Ambrose, in which the Samaritan symbolizes Christ. Now, while we would not agree with an allegorical reading of this parable, within the context of law and salvation or eternal life and good deeds, we do recognize the correspondence between the persons in the story, the lawyer, and the issue of neighbor. What Jesus will now show is that gaining eternal life requires demonstrating the mercy of the law. This nameless, unidentified, every man is headed on a path from the heights of Jerusalem to the lowest place below sea level on the planet. It is a treacherous path, then known for being a place in which people were vulnerable to thieves. 
This man, minding his own business, becomes victim to robbery, battery, and attempted murderer. He is humiliated by being stripped of his clothing. He is left somewhere between life and death, half dead, the text says, meaning he is severely wounded. Here is a man who might leave this world if no one finds him and helps him. Here is a man who is helpless to rescue himself, carrying the deep scarring of this present life. Here is someone whose wallet, cell phone, Canadian goose, parka have all been taken and who was thrown down to the ground and trampled by the crowds. If ever someone needed immediate, life-saving medical care, it is this man. Three people happen upon this man. The first is a priest, one who would have had a life conforming to the law. The law appointed him in his role, even though the priesthood was corrupted by the time of Jesus' day. But the priest, who would have kept the law pretty well, sees the man, and he makes a deliberate rerouting to the other side of the street. For him, the law he follows has no provision for a case like this. The second is a Levite, a representative of the Levitical Code or even of the entire Mosaic legal code. He too corresponds to the lawyer and anyone who would claim eternal life by means of perfect law-keeping. The language in the passage indicates that the Levite comes almost to the very place of the man. He decides that this is just not the day to get involved in an affair so messy. He might tarnish his Levitical garments or he might become ceremonially unclean, so he too passes by to the other side. The third is a Samaritan. To Jewish sensibilities, a Samaritan was as far from a law keeper one could be without being a full-blooded Gentile, without being a non-Jew. Samaritans looked down upon Jews, as is so evident in Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman in John 4. And Jews were glad to return the looking down at you too, you dog, favor. There was no love lost between Samaritans and Jews. Thus, this is the most unlikely candidate to help a traveler from Jerusalem who is down on his luck. If anything... The original Jewish hearers might expect the Samaritan to gloat, to say, serves you right, and to kick this man while he already is down. But this Samaritan shows excessive compassion to the man. He sees the same thing the priest and the Levite saw, but his internal response is one of pity not of apathy. 
He will show mercy that those following the law should have shown. He will rip his own clothes to make bandages, and he will pour his own wine like liquid painkiller mixed with antiseptic over the wounds of this person. He will dirty up the seat of his own beast with this half-dead stranger, and he will take him to an inn. Bandaging and oil would have met requirements of any humanitarian law, but going the distance with one's own beast is excessive in compassion and goes well beyond any law. Giving up two whole days worth of wages is a good chunk of change. Just think about giving up two days worth of your monthly income and still meeting all of your needs. Returning to check on a complete stranger is way over the top. There is no law that says one should do this. But we are not simply talking about the law. We are talking about neighbors and salvation. We are talking about loving neighbors and inheriting eternal life. We are talking about avoiding hell and seeing heaven. We are talking about enjoying the presence of God for all eternity, not simply about priests and Levites who don't want to get involved. Jesus turns to the legal expert to find out who acted in accordance with the law that says to love one's neighbor as oneself. It is so obvious that only one person acted. When the Samaritan sees his enemy on the ground, broken and in need, rather than ignoring and avoiding, he acts with mercy, driven by a heart of compassion. This, portrayed in the Samaritan, is what it means to be a neighbor, even a neighbor to one's enemies. This is the action of someone who has inherited eternal life. Our contemporary evangelical debates about justice unfortunately get hung up on philosophical and theological discussions of critical theories and intersectionality. It is not that we do not need such discussions, for we who seek to love God with all of our minds must be lovers of truth, discernment, and wisdom. We must bring thoughts opposing to the knowledge of God in captivity to Christ. Yet, to be a Christian means more than intellectual inquiry and debate. We must not stop at the door of debate. Instead, we need to go into the question of whether or not we are being neighbors with excessive compassion. For in Jesus' parabolic teaching, the doing that inherits eternal life or the doing that shows it has inherited eternal life as a gift given and not earned is to show excessive compassion to the one in need of help and mercy. And as Pastor Gerald has preached on the Macedonians, they gave out of their poverty. And when Pastor Gerald preached on love, he told us that biblical love does not simply tolerate others, but it goes all in seeking after the good of others. 
And I am grateful to be part of a church that is full enough of compassion that at one point we had so much in benevolence giving that we had to ask the congregation not to designate any more giving to benevolence. And I am also grateful to be part of a congregation that is concerned both for international missions and the preaching of the gospel for the saving of people's souls and for compassionate ministries locally that we are involved in serving the real human needs of people right around us. This week, I was talking to a student who had a close friend getting an abortion with certainty. The student asked me what to say or do toward the friend. I asked the student, does your friend understand that you think abortion is murder and you do not condone her actions. To which the student replied to me, yes. I replied, then your friend is not calling you for condemnation of her actions. She is calling to see if you will still be her friend after the abortion for supportive friendship. So when the abortion is done, since it is certain, go be the best supportive friend you can be to the person who will now be hurting. Do not give your friend a reason to question the compassion of the gospel. Seemingly later that same day, as Jesus and his disciples continued in their travels, he finds himself confronted by a second figure who wants to see if his idea about doing good deeds conforms to this person's idea of what is right. Martha is one who will become a friend of Jesus in the gospel accounts, as will her sister Mary. Martha opens her home to host Jesus and the disciples. While there, her sister Mary does nothing but sit and listen to Jesus teach. Martha works to prepare to serve her guests, which are many, but her sister is just sitting and listening. We don't have to guess at how Martha feels about Mary sitting while she slaves away with preparations for a house full of guests. Martha wants Jesus, whom she recognizes as Lord, to exhort or command Mary to get her lazy bones up and go to work. This is a sensible request. Why should one person have to prepare to serve 13 persons while another able-bodied person just enjoys what the Lord is teaching and doesn't lift a finger? And I'm sure Mary is later going to enjoy the food preparations also. I bet Martha wishes she could just enjoy the teaching, but there are cultural codes that demand she provide hospitable actions, and all the more so when Jesus has shown up. I mean, she should give Jesus her best and most excellent service, shouldn't she? Yet for Jesus, Mary is the one with the right response to his presence and teaching. Note that this response, first, is not anxious about working to please Jesus. Second, it is the one thing Jesus says is needed. Third, it is better than the preparations. And fourth, it has an everlasting shelf life. Once more, 
The right response does not need work and is better than working, for it is the one thing needed, and it is, it is eternal. It shall never be taken away. Resting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his word provides Mary with something eternal that is better than trying to work to please Jesus. That is because gaining eternal life requires depending on the mediator of life. So if you want eternal life, be like Mary and depend on Jesus and his word. If you actually have eternal life, be like the Samaritan and show it by giving excessive compassion to those in need. Here's how. Number one, when you see someone in need of help, do not assume the person is lazy, unintelligent, or unwise, no matter how many times the person returns for help. The man on the road to Jericho was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus' point is that those in need of help need our compassionate help, not the glances of priests and Levites to measure the need for help legally. Jesus is not looking for us to measure whether people are meeting the demands of the law. Yes, I know a person's appetite works for him, and those who are idle and will not work should not eat at believers' expenses. But those Protestant worth ethic—excuse me—default buttons should be married with all that is said about our God being merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Also, we do not have to—excuse me. We do have to keep boundaries up in order to prevent harm by users and abusers. Jesus is not asking us to invite harm to ourselves, and he never does. And he is not asking us to enable those who only seek to take advantage of others. The man on the ground is in real need, and excessive compassion is the order of the day by those holding eternal life. Number two, when we see others in need, we must not assume that we have avoided catastrophe by our own doing. We serve a God who saves us from dangers seen and unseen. All successes and safety we have in this life are because of the Lord's compassion and power toward us and not because we worked harder than everyone else. If you married as a virgin or without a pregnancy, it's because God kept you, not because you worked harder than all the other girls. You raised children who still love Jesus because God has worked graciously in the lives of your children. Your business is successful because that is how mercy has operated in God's decree towards you right now. You were able to handle three children under the age of five without pulling out your hair or calling for the help of others because the Lord was filling you with strength and ample mentors and family examples and a whole lot of invisible nannying done by angels and not because you were the perfect mom or other parent. Meekness and soberness toward our own blessings helps us give grace toward others. 
when we see that we are nothing but recipients of grace, we are glad to give grace. Number three, in all situations in which compassion is needed, we must put on our virtual shoes and enter the other person's world. We must ask, what would I want right now if I were in that position? The answer is never nothing or to be left alone. We cannot force help upon others, yes, but we must think in terms of loving as we love ourselves, which is to say to love as we want love shown to us or as we show love to ourselves. The Samaritan went off schedule to take care of this man on both legs of his trip when he was coming down the road and when he came back to the inn. Number four, if you are trying to be good or do better before you come to Jesus, I appreciate that, but it's not necessary. The word you need to hear is that Jesus does all the work for salvation by dying for sin in your place and rising again from the dead so that he can offer you life after death. This is the good news of eternal life. Jesus gives eternal life as a gift and we do not work for it. Once we have it, we then go to work compassionately. So I urge you, Stop trying to be good and simply cry out to God to save you from your unrighteousness and to give you life in Christ. See, we do not necessarily agree with Augustine's interpretation of the parable, but all of us know that on this road of life, when life has beaten us up, we don't need a God or a people who will just look at us when broken relationships have stripped us, we don't want so-called friends or God to pass by on the other side of the sidewalk. When we have been left for dead, the only hope that we have is that Jesus will come down the road and save us, that he will step out of heaven, find us lying down on the ground, bandage up our wounds, soothe them with his oils, get us to a place of safety, and he will pay our bill in full. Forgetting eternal life is something Jesus does for us. Showing eternal life is something that we do for our neighbors. Let's pray. And Father, we bless the name of Jesus for granting eternal life to us freely as a gift inherited and given by the owner and not earned. We bless you for the grace to show the eternal life we possess as we give your compassion to others. Bless now that we who are deep recipients of all the compassion of heaven would be the most compassionate people there are so that people see Jesus. Bless so that those trying to give compassion in order to inherit eternal life will stop doing so and simply trust Jesus. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. 
Amen.